0: Stop dabbing me in the face, all right? Was <laughs> this supposed to
1: be You know? <laughs> yes.
2: So uh, let's let's introduce the show. I'm Hunter. You're Hugh. That's
0: correct. But what's the podcast we're on?
2: Friday Day It's a podcast about movies, pizza, food, so much more entertainment news box office we're committed to do entertainment news
0: yeah you said it so it has to go in what are we, what are we discussing on the show today hugh getting right to business we will be discussing Quentin Tarantino's ninth feature, or as he puts it on the poster, the ninth feature from Quentin Tarantino. Yes. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh-huh. And we'll also be continuing our exploration of the Iranian new wave with two more Abbas Kiristami films.
2: In fact, we'll be finishing our little Abbas Kiarostami marathon.
0: And those films are certified copy and Like Someone in Love. Two films made outside of his native Iran. What is Iran. Uh, it's a song by Flock of Seagulls. It
2: was a good joke. I'm, uh, yeah, it was it was genius. Not at all. Uh, <laughs> it's not really offensive. I'm keeping it in. Great. I'm sure that won't ruin our careers. Reels
1: on meals on reels on meals on reels. Reels on meals on reels on meals on reels.
0: Hunter, what uh, what meals have you had today? I started today with some crispy
2: rice cereal.
0: What's it called? What's the brand name?
2: Well, the brand name is... There is no brand name because it's an off-brand <laughs> Trader Joe's version of a Rice Krispie. Okay. Uh, so I had that. Good. I had some leftover Japanese curry with some rice, uh, which I made last night for dinner, which was good. And then for dinner, I had a mango and wild rice salad with some bread on the side. What would you have? What are your, your, your meals of that day?
0: So, so far, all I've consumed is toast with butter and Vegemite. And by butter, I mean generic spread, which is not
2: butter. In fact, it is margarine. Correct. Anyway, so who cares? Um, Let's talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon
1: a Time
2: Once upon a time in Hollywood. What is the movie about?
0: Once upon a time in Hollywood. Uh, uh, it's a 2019 comedy drama film written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, produced by Columbia Pictures, Bonafide Group, Heyday Films, and uh, <laughs> Visioner Romantica, and distributed by Sony Pictures Releasing. It's so an international it co-production Japanese... in the United States and the United Kingdom. The film stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot <laughs> okay, Robbie. You get, you get stop so, this. what uh, happens in this movie? Like, what's what's the setting? What's the premise? What goes on? I think, if if
2: memory serves. Quentin Tarantino walks on screen, masturbates into the camera, and says, "Ah, the '60s," and that's it. <laughs> is, that, is that right? The, the semen runs down the lens. Yeah, it it spells out 1960. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> then it cuts to black. What is one's put it now in Hollywood? It is a movie about Hollywood. The year is 1960 something, <laughs> sixty nine, and. Washed-up TV actor Cliff Booth, no, sorry, Rick Dalton.
1: Jesus Christ.
2: (laughs) I mistake the double for the regular one. Wow. Uh, Rick Dalton uh, is going through the latest round of pilot season. His chances for making it big on TV are not looking good. He has been reduced from his previous film career to co-starring in shitty-looking TV pilots. No, but I think
0: he was primarily famous for starring in a Western, which was Bounty That's true. Killer.
2: That's true. And he had no, bounty, some bounty side wall. film projects. Bounty Law. Whatever, yeah. You saw this movie yesterday. <laughs> he had some side film projects. Yes. We well, tried to make it as a movie star and failed.
0: Yeah, so his success is really as a TV actor.
2: Yes. So he's going back to TV, but in a diminished place. Yes. Um, so he is doing that along with his... Stump double slash handyman slash manservant, whose name is Cliff Booth, He's played by Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. uh, and he is also just sort of wandering around. <laughs> and there's one other character whose name is Sharon Tate, who is their next door neighbor. Um, and they all drive around in cars. They do some things. Some Manson's involved. That's the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the movie. It's not. It's not what you would call a plot heavy film. So, Hugh, what did you think of, uh, you know, you were an avowed Tarantino disliker. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think we should start
0: with your response to this, because you you saw it before me. You've seen it twice. I did. Already, I already know you like it, so there's there's no suspense here.
2: I have seen it. In fact, Hugh, I almost bought tickets to it to see it again today, but I didn't.
0: So I, I, think, I think we should start there. So we'll, we'll keep my uh, reaction on hold. Mm-hmm. We'll keep our audience in suspense Uh, while you talk through uh, your opinion about this film.
2: You know, Hugh, there's something about the vibe, the mood, the atmosphere that Tarantino conjures here that just really worked for me. Mm -hmm. And I just loved every luminous frame of this film. Uh, I think it's funny in parts, uh, uncomfortable in other parts, maybe intentionally so in some and unintentionally in others. But overall, I just thought it was really masterfully done. Hmm. And that's just nonsense, pretty much, saying that. But I thought it was melancholy in all the right places, uh, nostalgic in others, and I just I just really enjoyed it a lot. I really enjoyed the interplay between uh, Brad Pitt and DiCaprio, who I think both give sort of career-high performances, at least in my eyes, in this film. You may disagree, but that is how I feel. Uh, I think... I I enjoy the fact that Tarantino has sort of reined in some of his more showy impulses here. Mm-hmm. This film is very; it's not as sort of in-your-face of its style as as many of his other films are. I think you'd both agree on that. Mm. It is it is somewhat restrained in terms of its just pure visual language. I think that really works in its favor, uh, and I think it has several great <laughs> montages. I think the soundtrack is expertly chosen, even if I don't uh, like some of the music that's on it. Uh, and, you know, he, I think I think Tarantino and I dislike Hippies for maybe separate reasons. But, um, you know, I just enjoy a good movie that also seems to really hate Hippies. So, I think I can leave it at that. Okay. What did you think? Well,
0: <clears throat> let me just...
2: Uh... <laughs> Clear through it.
0: Yeah, you got to be free for all the vial. So I'm going to start with with the positives Mm. here, right? I do think the performances are a bit of a mixed bag, Mm. um, which is a weird way to start my positives. (laughs) It is. I'll get to the positive part of of what I mean. I just wanted to qualify it first. So both DiCaprio and Pitt adopt accents, which are not their natural accents, which exacerbate their limitations as actors, I think. Mm. Especially Pitt. Because he puts on a voice that recalled his dreadful performance in War Machine, a film we've covered on this very podcast.
2: Wow, I can't say I agree with this at all. But
0: as well as his uh, dreadful performance in Tarantino's own Inglorious Bastards, which I know you liked, I did. The I think he's good at in that the too, so <laughs> um, sorry, but he was—he's putting on that "Hey, I'm Brad Pitt" voice. It's like less—it's to a lesser extent in this film than it is in War Machine, but. It, 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 it's similar, it's it's outside of his normal range, I think, his normal speaking voice, and it is unconvincing, I think. Mm. Um, but I do think that both actors manage some effective moments in this film. Um, I, I, I thought the, the scene in which DiCaprio browbeats himself in his trailer after forgetting his lines... Good stuff. ..was effective, I think that was a good performance. And um, I think Pitt shows himself here as a really good physical actor yeah that he can carry a scene just with his looks and movements yes um, so it's kind of a shame he doesn't have as few lines as Margot Robbie there's a there's a nice sequence of him repairing an aerial uh, on a roof um, topless yes and he captivates just just with his physicality in that scene that was a nice acknowledgement of like an old Hollywood virtue that he possesses that obviously Quentin Tarantino is playing up here yeah I mean, I mean, I, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more because I watched it and it's not a coincidence that I watched the film Model Shop. But, you know, there's something about Gary Lockwood's physical performance in that film as well. Yeah. And and that was one of the reasons uh, after Harrison Ford fell through that um, Chuck and he went with Lockwood. So I, I do want to give credit there. So the, and I don't give that credit lightly because neither actor has ever impressed me very much. Mm. I also want to give credit to that extended sequence where... Um, Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth goes to the the Manson Ranch. Mm. Um, that scene seemed to encapsulate what Tarantino is aiming for with this synthesis of history and myth, mm. and it was genuinely compelling on its own terms. And I like the fact that it doesn't it doesn't end in the way that you might expect it to
2: as well. Mm. Indeed.
0: Um, but I I don't really like this film. Mm. And um, a, a lot of the problem is that I can see the pitch. And this is a problem I have with a lot of Tarantino's films. I can hear his voice excitedly running me through the film blow by blow. Uh-huh. Like I can, I can hear him telling me, you know, Rick Dalton's going to wear the brown leather jacket from Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Cliff Booth is, is going to live by an oil rig like Gary Lockwood in the aforementioned model shop. Um, we're going to linger on... Um, Cliff Booth feeding his dog somewhat like Elliot Gould feeding his cat in The Long Goodbye. Uh-huh. And it doesn't just apply to the references. I can picture him selling me on the characters, like this mm. waning TV Western star, this shit-kicking stuntman who once beat up Bruce Lee but is loyal like a dog. And, and on Cliff Booth, much has been made of the suggestion in this film that he murders his wife and gets away with it, right? Uh-huh. That's, that's been a bit of a controversial element among some other controversial elements of this film. Um, and some people have said it's Tarantino deliberately introducing an unsettling element to his character to sort of undercut the heroism that he displays maybe later in this film or something like that.
2: Mm. What did you make of that? Yeah, that's actually basically what I made out of it. It also just seemed like a note of, I don't know, like realism in a way. Or this Hollywood is, something, is somewhere where someone could get away with doing something like that and basically be, you know, emerged unscathed.
0: That's true. That's true. But I also just think Tarantino makes films with anti-heroes, right? Mm. He never makes films with completely clean-cut heroes. That's true. Um, and the murder flashback is essentially played for laughs, or the mm. suggestion of murder in that flashback. Um, and and it, fits, it fits the character pitch. And I can hear... His voice again, selling it to me. Stuntman Cliff Booth, who is rumored to have murdered his wife and got away with it. Dot, dot, dot. You know. Uh, and you probably want to add something like that to this character because he's not that much of a character without that detail. Yeah. And I think you can especially hear the excited, masturbatory cadence of Tarantino's voice in the climax of this film, the controversial climax, mm. which basically answers the question what if the Manson family picked the wrong people to fuck with?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And and that that is my problem. I can't escape the personality of Tarantino. Mm. And I really think that for the most part, his films don't transcend him as a person. Uh-huh. Like if if you've ever seen him expound on cinema, as he has wont to do.
2: See, but this is maybe why I like his films more than you do, as I have not. <laughs> it basically my my only exposure to him is his own shitty roles in his own films. So. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. I, I you. You know, I'm someone who very much believes in the death of the author. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I t- I tend to divorce or try to divorce myself from reading too much too many of author's statements just because I, I they don't really interest me that much, honestly.
0: Uh to finish my point, if if anyone like me has seen him expand on cinema mm. and then watched one of his films, you'd be like, yeah, this makes sense. This is the the film that guy would make.
2: Yeah, I could see how that would be irritating for sure.
0: Often his films Feel like a collection of things that he gets a kick out of. No foot pun intended. Uh, in theory, um,
2: you're laughing you your own shitty foot joke. So good job. Yes, it's a great joke. Is it? <laughs> well, that literally everyone in the film community has made. <laughs> Anyone who's ever watched a Tarantino film has been like, "That guy likes feet, rat." Right?
0: So, good job. But they haven't put it as elegantly as I did. In yeah, theory, sure. in theory, his cinema-obsessed magpie approach to filmmaking is as valid as any, I think. Yeah. Uh-huh. I just don't think he quite has the discipline to to sustain his particular ethos across an entire film in a way that's that satisfactory. Very often, his films as a whole don't live up to their best scenes. mm Probably no coincidence that his most successful stories or narratives originate from external sources like the Elmore Leonard novel for Jackie Brown, Ringo Lamb's City on Fire for Reservoir Dogs and stuff like that. Like, when I think of this particular film's best scene, which I already mentioned, that's the standoff at the Manson Ranch, that, for me, that scene doesn't feel like a part of a broader story. Mm. Um, it feels like a vignette or a short film. And I know this film is is intentionally loose and he's not supposed to tell like this sustained narrative yeah i don't know it it doesn't feel like it was supported by the rest of the film interesting so basically what i'm saying is i think tarantino would make a better podcaster than a filmmaker (laughs) well
2: you you, do have a podcast for you to listen to um and what what do you think is the best scene for you i mean for me the probably the scene that i i thought was the best is the margot robbie one where she goes visit and visits the theater that is like tied also with the the sequence where like Rick Dalton suits the um pilot. And I definitely like that sequence in the in the um at the at the Manson Ranch, but honestly that one's for me actually suffers a little bit from feeling Well, no, I guess I don't know. I I see I do like it. That's the problem. Is there's nothing in this film that I'm like this is like I could say like, yeah, it does feel slightly disconnected, but I kind of like I don't know, I, I enjoy that quality to be honest. Mm. Like I feel like you're someone who cares a little bit more about I don't know. <laughs> More, maybe not coherence, but put togetherness, you know what I mean? When I do. I mean, that could be true, but I think what it is, right?
0: I don't think Tarantino has much interesting to say about Mm. life, right? If we're talking about certain types of art that speak to you as a human, Mm. that speak to, quote, unquote, the, the human condition, right? I don't think that's really what he's about. So that that is, you know, that's one approach and that's one way art can reach you is to speak to you on that particular human level, humanist kind of level, right? Which some of the films we've looked at on this podcast certainly do,
2: right? Uh-huh.
0: But there's also a way that art can reach you through aesthetic pleasure. And um, and I don't think really Tarantino kind of fits the first definition.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, I mean, he's, he's often been criticised as someone who doesn't make films about real life. He makes films about films, movies about movies.
2: Yeah. Whatever.
0: Fine. That's you know we can so we'll leave that aside and and say so let's look at him in from the perspective of, of what he's actually doing and what he enjoys about movies and what he's trying to recreate and present for us what sort of aesthetic constructions these are
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I don't get I don't get enough pleasure personally from the way he puts these films together and what he th- he seems to get a kick out of as it were mm-hmm. so I focus on things like how disjointed they feel and all that sort of stuff which I might be more content to skirt over or even appreciate if I was on his wavelength. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of what it is for me.
2: Yeah, I guess that's where we differ on this, is where this film gives me like pretty much all, all the sequences that give me some sort of aesthetic pleasure. But I find this film to be sort of like sneakily moving in a way, because it also is sort of a, I don't know, like a commentary about the passage of time, Hugh. But probably the scene that, that got me the most is the sequence where... It's just this sort of non-narrative sequence where after uh, there's like a break in the film where uh, Rick Dalton goes to Italy and shoots some Spaghetti Westerns. Mm-hmm. And they fly in and there's just this sort of little mini montage of them of of all these like sort of retro stylized stores and other restaurants like Lighting Up and this Rolling Stones song plays. Uh, and it was just really effective and... <laughs> I don't know, it really made me, I mean, I, it's, it's kind of on the nose, because obviously the song is like, I can't even remember what it's called, Out of Time, maybe?
1: Because
2: mm-hmm. really, this film is a, a sort of uh, panini to, you know, like, workmanship, really, you know? A pm, And I feel like, yeah, that's what I mean.
0: Not a sandwich to workmanship. No, not a
2: panini. <laughs> I never <laughs> know how to pronounce that word. I don't know. It 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 just that, that scene was just really brought everything together for me in some way. Mm-hmm. The way he views acting as like a profession first, and then like as a, as an art second. Really, I thought it was really kind of moving in a way. And I like the way that he incorporates like Margot Robbie into that too, or Sharon Tate character into that as well.
0: Um. So we maybe we should mention at this point. There's been there's been some. I think, misguided criticism about uh, the amount of lines Margot Robbie has in this film. Yeah. It's a silly way of quantifying his feminist credentials.
2: And it's kind of like the um, the Bechtel test, you know, where it's like maybe this sounds, I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with like, judging a movie by that, but maybe this sounds like you're saying something interesting when you say it, but when you actually go and like, sit down and watch this film, it's like, it's, they have plenty of like, really developed female characters and, and female leads, you know? And including like Sharon Tate in this film, where while her character is I mean, she doesn't have a lot of lines, but at the same time, like she's kind of the heart of the film, you know.
0: She has a really important function in this film because she's a contrast between the has-been Rick Dalton at the, the tail end of his career and someone coming up, and also um, symbolizing innocence and some sort of naivety as well. Yeah. Which you know, everyone says that the uh, the Manson murders was the end of that innocence.
2: Yeah. And I, I kind of like that he displaces it from, you know, her murder onto her career as a whole, you know? Um, and I, I actually thought that was kind of moving, too, in a way.
0: And, and famously actually using the footage from the Wrecking Crew with the real Sharon Tate in it, as opposed to doing a special effect like he does with Leonardo DiCaprio.
2: Yeah.
0: Inserted into... Um, Actual footage of old FBI Old TV shows. And and,
2: yeah. Other shows, yeah. Um, but I, I just really like that contrast. And I kind of like... I don't, I don't know if there's... There's something I really... And I, I found that ending to be, like, really devastating, too, you know? I, I guess it almost has its cake and eat it, eat it, eats it as well. Mm-hmm. Because it, on one hand, it's, like, showing you this, like, supposedly cathartic violence, right? Mm-hmm. But with the ending, it sort of, like, is robbing that violence of any sort of, like, you know, real-life power, right? Because <laughs> it's not going to change the fact, like, you know... <laughs> like, ter still this just ghostly presence. And in real life, she's just a she's a... You know, a woman who was killed for no reason, really.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think that I think that there there are moments in the climax where it really sort of like how I said, it, like I like that he doesn't shy away from like how horrifying the violence is too. And there's like one shot of one of the Manson uh, women's like face that has been like burned off for like you know, <laughs> you read this like moment where you're, like. Uh, uh, Rick Dalton like takes this flamethrower and like burns her to death. It's like this like yes, you know, moment. But then you just see her like charred face, and it's like, did I really just cheer for this like horrifying bit? Right? Mm. Not that I feel much sympathy for the Manson family at all.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, the ending is is has been a bit controversial.
2: That's true. Yeah,
0: but a lot of the people who've given it positive reviews, which is a lot of people, mm. have rationalized it away in some way. Um, and I feel like I feel like it gives. Tarantino a little bit too much credit. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I can try and rationalise the ending. I mean, he's taking these these bit players, this has-been actor and his uh, has-been stuntman, really, uh-huh. um, along with an actor who is really only known now for being murdered, which is Sharon Tate.
2: Yeah, that's true.
0: In the context of 1969, uh-huh. when the Vietnam War was still going, and it was this epoch-like moment in American history. Yes. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera, The death of the summer of love, loss yeah. of innocence, blah, blah, blah. And also, also the changing of the film industry itself. Yeah. And he's giving them this fairy tale ending. Yeah. As suggested by the title, Once Upon a Time.
1: Mm.
0: He's letting them rewrite history as pulp heroes, in a way. And it's kind of a homage to the pulpy sensibilities that, that Tarantino has built his career on. And I mean, he self-consciously included snippets of a Rick Dalton fake film in this in this film. Yeah, that resembles Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, which was the previous film where he famously rewrote history. Yeah,
2: which is my other favorite Tarantino film. So
0: yeah, so like he writes their ending, their moment of glory, in the spirit of of these pulp films that these actors were making. And Mm. in the spirit of the characters that that Dalton used to play and the character that Booth, in real life, sometimes resembles. And, you know, you could go on and say it's Tarantino saying, we already know what happened in real life. We know the actual Manson tragedy. And real life is tragic and horrible, but movies don't have to be that way. Movies are something else, something more... We can do whatever we want. I can do whatever I want because I'm Quentin Tarantino.
2: Mm.
0: I don't have to grow up and mature. My innocence doesn't have to die like America's did. I can go out fighting.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, don't know if I, I agree with this. I don't know.
0: I'm just, I'm just going all over the place. But you, you can rationalize the ending. I'm not, I'm um, not,
2: again, I'm just saying this is why I responded to it the way I did. I wouldn't describe that as like rationalizing it because it makes it sound like it's objectively flawed. You know. I don't mean
0: you in particular can rationalise the ending. I mean the proverbial you can rationalise the ending. You know, so when this film was first uh, premiered at Cannes, Mm. uh, Quentin Tarantino didn't actually apply an embargo but strongly encouraged uh, the press to keep the twist secret. And that, you know, that alerted me to the fact that there was going to be some sort of twist yeah and we already knew it, the Manson family were involved, and we knew that it was centered on these two characters, right
2: so it's not it's not much of a twist,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not much of a twist. as I'm watching the film, I'm like, well, how is he gonna integrate these fictional characters he's he's created with this Manson murder that the film is building up to mm. this sort of pervading dread of what's gonna happen how is he just gonna do an exploitative version of the actual murders or what's he going to do if it, it, to me it felt pretty obvious that he was going to do what he did in
2: *Inglorious bastards mm. but he doesn't he doesn't really do what he does in *Inglorious glorious bastards though he essentially does but i think it's kind of different in that like you know in glorious bastards like it's it's like they kill all the nazis right and this is just like i mean i don't know but it's like peripheral you know people to the manson family right well, they're the people who actually did the murders. <laughs> yeah, it's central people, but it's not like, you know. No, but like,
0: like presumably, if you if you follow this through, they would trace them back to the Manson Ranch, and the investigation would start from there.
2: Yeah, and they wouldn't
0: have an opportunity to do what they did, and eventually it would get back to Manson himself. Yeah, which is I mean,
2: what happened in real life, right? Except for they, yeah, killed people. So it's not like that much of a. A difference you know
0: well, it spared the lives of the people who died
2: yeah but i'm saying it's 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 not quite as know, extreme no but the
0: philosophically it's the same mm. it's it's a way of rewriting history so the good guys win
2: I, yeah I, I don't know
0: i don't know like i don't is he getting you to examine your relationship to cathartic violence or is he just indulging in cathartic violence
2: i mean i would definitely say i, I think he's you know you need to examine it
0: I felt really uncomfortable in the cinema during that scene because, like, that you could feel people really enjoying it. All
2: right. That that seems that seems like a pretty, um, like, you know, cliche way to, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even dislike your your reaction, but the, it felt like
0: the it was hitting the audience in the way he intended. Mm. Right. It felt like well we've been we've been kind of enjoying the company of these people throughout the whole film, and now they're. Uh, changing the ending mm. that we've expected, or like we've been, we've been. But
2: I don't, I don't, I can't imagine that many people. Like, how many people are watching this movie? Being like, yes, this is like we know how the Manson murders went down exactly right, mm-hmm. and this is rewriting our narrative of it. Versus like just people watching this movie being like, all right, now that there's going to be some violent action. You know what I mean?
0: Well, either way, it's it's still yeah a cathartic moment of heroism or something. Mm. I could sort of I could sort of get the case that that um he wants to have his cake and eat it too by both indulging in the violence and maybe making it a little bit too unpleasant to enjoy. Yeah, but I think that's the whole,
2: whole Tarantino's like thing, right? That's definitely how I felt about it, so
0: Because I mean he does like pulpy violence and mm. some of the films he he does he, he takes inspiration from can be this violent and this uncomfortable and this extreme just as part of their Pulpy aesthetic without necessarily commenting on anything, right? Mm, sure. So it's hard to know. Like, has he pushed it that far? Just because that's the sensibility he likes, or are he actually trying to say something here, or what? The whole scene feels know. like he's played played for laugh and catharsis mm. to me.
2: Well, again, we could disagree. Yeah, I just don't
0: think he's for me. Not for me.
2: Well, well this was for me? It's probably here a couple of years so far. <laughs> mm. um, and uh, I don't know. All right, all done? Hold on. Okay. Uh, so now we go on to Pizza Talk. Bad film. Nope, great film. <laughs> Uh Pizza, what's it called?
1: Pass a piece of pizza, baby. I want some pizza, lay me out a slice. Fetch a felon feature for me. It's the police, sorry, take them fights.
2: Uh, You, mine's going to be short. Didn't have any pizza. Mine's also going to be short. Didn't have any pizza. (laughs) All right,
1: moving on. Project time, it's project time. Project time, it's project time. Project time, it's project time. Project time, it's project time.
2: Abbas Karastami, final two films. That's right. Like someone in love. Like someone in love. That can be the uh Certified Copy first. That could be the um the the chorus to the song that you make of of it. Mm-hmm. Like someone in love. Like someone in love. Just put a beat under that. Perfect. Like someone in love. You wanna keep doing that? I think I've got enough. Like someone in love. Okay uh great so next is certified copy hugh what's a certified copy and how do i get one
0: uh so you would need to go down to a justice of the peace um or your local police station or a uh, accredited pharmacist Uh with photocopies of your identity documents along with the actual identity documents, and then they will certify that the copy you have made is a copy of the original. Uh, And that allows you to mail away for things that require identification without having to mail your original identification items.
1: mm
2: -hmm. Great. Uh, So what is the film Certified Copy by Abbas? Kiarostami about
0: so it's it's the first film that Abbas Kiarostami made outside of Iran yeah and it is sort of a euro pudding production uh-huh featuring France's own Juliette Binoche yeah and Britain's own
2: Australia's own sorry Australia's own <laughs> you have to admit there is a it, there is a resemblance between you and him
0: he's a handsome fellow of course
2: <laughs> yeah just like you
0: yes okay and Britain's own opera singer Yep. William Schimmel in his mm. first role. Not his only role. Not his only role, because he went on to appear in Michael Haneke's Amour and another film.
2: Michael Haneke's I don't give a shit about this film. Part 17.
0: You <laughs> understand why uh, Kiristami cast him? Because he has that same sad old face that <laughs> he seems to
1: use a lot.
2: Mm-hmm. And reading, reading about the production of this film, apparently he was going for several people with sad old faces. <laughs>
1: Yes, yes.
2: (laughs) The Robert De Niro.
0: (laughs) Yes, so so it's got Juliette Binoche. Juliette Binoche from France, a British opera singer from England. And it's set in Italy.
2: Uh, In Tuscany, specifically.
0: And it was uh, made with money from France, Italy, and Belgium. Wow, not
2: Belgium. And it's
0: trilingual.
2: It is like every other European art film of the last 10 years. (laughs) Funded by a bunch of different places, most of which not even the country of the primary language is spoken
0: so that is the film
2: yeah that's it it Done. has a
0: plot as well i guess uh so so sort of a plot the the british dude james miller has written a book about the idea of uh copies of original works mm. and sort of a, a philosophical meditation on the worth of a copy
1: mm-hmm.
0: and dismantling the idea that there is more value in authenticity
2: yeah yeah whatever it's all it's it's very um you know the age of art or the work of art in the age of mechanical or production
0: yes correct we all got it so he's this dude he's in uh, he's in tuscany to to give a little talk about his his work which has been translated into italian yes julia Benoche is an antiques dealer she's there with her son she's like yeah that guy's handsome he looks like this australian guy and then uh, she organizes to meet him and show him around her antique shop. But uh, he would rather slather his sauce on her, on her Binoche buns.
2: Uh, I think I he'd think rather not slather his sauce on, it, on her... I feel like that is a... Uh, maybe you watch the wrong film. Maybe you watch the... The copy of the film that is in fact a porn version of it. You sure you need to go out on Pornhub instead of the Criteria channel to watch this?
0: Oh, damn it. Damn it. (laughs) Uh, They decide to hang out. Um, They go for a drive. And over the course of the film, their relationship begins to mutate from relative strangers to seemingly a couple that has been married for 15 years. What is going on? That's the film.
2: That is the film. You're right. Big fan of this film, Hunter? Well, Hugh, if you had asked you before I rewatched it, I would have said, yeah, I'm a huge fan of this film. I saw this movie when it was originally released, back in 2011, or 2010 even. Oh, uh, did you really? Yeah. I saw it in a theater. The Departed, the, the uh. D-O-E- yeah, The Departed
0: is Scorsese.
2: No, it's Kirstami. Mean. Okay. Uh, I, I may have seen it in 2011. I don't know. But there's an art house theater that I would go to all the time with my grandmother, and we went and saw this together. And I remember being blown away by this film when I was, um, I guess, uh, 16 or 17. Did Grandma like it too? Yeah. She also liked The Tree of Life. Anyway. Well, I I gotta admit, I was kind of... uh, I still like this film. But I found the opening section to be less compelling than I would have anticipated. Mm. In fact, I thought the second section, the relationship you taste, to be much more interesting uh, than the first Maybe it's because I've been poisoned by years of graduate school, but I thought a lot of the sort of, uh, concepts that are sort of played around in the beginning to be a little uh, surface level, let's say. I agree. It
0: feels a very, a very basic philosophical discussion. It
2: feels, it feels like something that, you know, that, uh, Walter Benjamin, uh, in the year of, let me just do a quick search, 1936- uh, had it pretty much closed yeah <laughs> with his great essay uh, and I thought it was strange that the film <laughs> didn't try to position itself in relation to that essay or anything and I thought that whole section was kind of boring <laughs> as a result <laughs> um, but I still think this film has value so what do you think? I'm not sure it has that much value, to be
0: honest. I didn't really like this. Wow, that's um, interesting. So it's seemingly modeled on uh, Rossellini's Voyage to Italy, mm-hmm,
2: which I've never seen. So maybe if I had seen that, I would have liked this less or more.
0: It's a very—it's got a very similar central dynamic between the couple, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's a little bit darker, mm-hmm. and the guy is like even less likable than mm-hmm. I am in this film.
2: And you're very unlikable. <laughs> Very <laughs> unlikable. I, I do think me watching this film was ruined by two things. One, that I had an extremely long day at work beforehand and was really tired. And two, that I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that he, you look like this guy. And I was just picturing you as him. And so, <laughs> I was like, I was like examine, and there's like some things that I was like, I can't tell if I'm, I think this is bad actor you like, this is how i think that you would act if he were put in this if he was doing this role you mean how how i would how my
0: performance would be yes. or how i would act as a person in that position both
2: <laughs> okay because i was like man he Hugh, was really killing these lines <laughs> and so i was like yeah i could see you being a relationship like this
0: You consider me gentle, but cold. (laughs) Trying to (laughs) coldly rationalize away my, my lack of um, affection.
2: Yeah. Your lack of affection for (laughs) Quintetito. Exactly. I fucking got you. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah. So, so there is, there is echoes of Voyage of Italy and Mm. that seems deliberate. Maybe Mm. Um, it does have shades of like Linklaters before trilogy as well. Yeah. And even in the mood for love in the performative, uh, nature of their relationship
2: yes that's true and how their, their relationship is affected by other people's performance of their own relationship too
0: yes but it's certainly not flattered by the comparison within the mood for love I don't yeah, which is
2: a perfect film
0: yes and I think this does suffer a similar problem that affects at least two thirds of the before trilogy mm. which is that the philosophical dialogue that the characters spend most of the film engaged in mm. doesn't feel remotely convincing mm-hmm And it exists in this awkward middle ground between cinematic naturalism and something that would be more appropriate for the stage. Mm. And it's not believable enough to pass for naturalism, and it's not well-written enough to pass for something worthy of the stage.
2: Yeah, I I agree with that.
0: So it's just kind of this awkward, very unconvincing um, dialogue. Mm. Um, I mean, it it does feel like a Kiristami film. It retains his yeah. signature pacing.
2: There, there's some really gorgeous shots in this.
0: And there's those deliberate lulls where we just hang on something that's not the, the central characters. Of.
2: There, there's one shot which I actually think is done better in the next film we're going to talk about. <laughs> but um, there's one shot where they're just driving along and their faces are ba- basically completely evaporated by the landscape that's been reflected on the, the windshield. Which I was really taken by.
0: Yes, yes, and that is done better in, like, Someone in Love, I agree.
2: But, yeah, there's... there's I like some of the
0: pauses and the rhythm of life going on all around, and there's this moment where they're, they're taking a photo with a couple... Yeah. Um, ...who have just been married, mm. and we see the next bride sit on the seat that uh, I previously occupied, and we don't follow the characters in to take the photo. We just hang hang there
1: on yeah. the, the person I, who's I, in, fact, in fact, this
2: sort of action of the film... Uh, does that in several respects where it's up in place in the background of, of shots and there's something else to occupy the foreground. But I, I did
0: also feel that, that he feels less interested in the location in the landscape here than he did in his better Iranian films. Mm. And I think the greater fidelity photography mm. had a certain flatness about it that did make it look like any number of European art films. of the same era and if I was like channel surfing one day and I came across this movie out of context I probably would have just written it off as yet another dull French meditation on love or something I agree I don't think it's quite that but I also don't think it's that far off Mm. we do have we do have his signature metatextual games yeah so we we get the the strange transition that this central couple makes from being like, we, we don't actually know what's, what's taking place. Are they yeah. strangers pretending to be a couple, mm. or a couple pretending to be strangers pretending to be a couple?
2: Yeah.
0: And uh, we get somewhat ambiguous ending again. Yeah. Um, a central thesis around what is authentic and what is mm. not. And then, you know, it doesn't matter what is being performed, what is real, if we're watching yeah. a reproduction anyway. And yeah. you know, there's all these layers that you can yeah, yeah, tease yeah, yeah. out if you. Whatever. If you wanted, which I don't particularly want to no, do. No, neither do I. <laughs> there is stuff you could talk about here if you wanted to. Like, for example, if you assigned this film in a cinema studies class.
2: Does <laughs> like a film that's sort of made for that approach? Maybe why it's been so wanted. But I do, I, like, I mean, the experience of watching it I found modestly enjoyable.
0: I didn't get bored. And I watched it fresh in the morning, not after a long day at work, because I don't work. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I still don't think it's an especially successful or satisfying film it felt no. a little empty to me uh, very unconvincing and there was something
2: even a little lifeless about it I I do agree about the first maybe two thirds but I don't know there's something that just sort of um, really worked for me in the, in, as the sort of like you know the film reaches conclusion I actually found the the final couple of shots to be really <laughs> melancholic and sad in a way mm. Uh, and they it it sort of becomes like, you know, I don't know. You talked about it being a meditation on love and stuff, but that stuff actually. Some of the stuff when they're in the cafe, I thought was a little forced. You know.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think his performance suffers a little bit there, which yeah. probably shows his inexperience yeah. as a film actor.
2: <laughs> and that's maybe why I was reminded of you too. So I feel like he did your your petulant voice. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Um, so that, uh, that's a credit I mean you know it was your, it was your first performance so
0: yeah oh, one thing about this film uh, again, I didn't like dislike the experience of watching it, mm-hmm. but sort of intellectually I dislike this film to the extent where it makes me question my positive reaction to mm-hmm. some of his previous films and maybe wow maybe, like, tempt me towards uh, downgrading some of them. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it just made me a little bit suspicious about Kiristami. But, I mean, I
2: think that's wrong. But. Yeah, just, there, there's something that seems kind of empty about this, I, I do agree. Mm. But uh, my opinion was kind of, um, I don't know, I, I, uh, it, was, it was maybe uh, upgraded a bit uh, from another film we watched, so we'll see. I, I quite like the idea of what happens
0: in this film which is the, that transition between apparent strangers to, hey, maybe they are actually a couple, yeah. what's going on here?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's interesting, but I don't think the transition is handled very well. Mm. It felt clunky. Yeah, um, I, kinda, I do agree with you.
2: I do think I'm more positive to this film than you are. Maybe I mean, haven't exactly articulated why. But I do you think there is something genuinely, it feels close to Kurosami's heart, you know, maybe I'm just projecting onto this film, right?
0: Well apparently it's it's sprung from a lie he told Juliet Binoche. Yeah. That she
2: believed. It it seems to reflect his own views on marriage a lot. <laughs> you know. Mm. Which I, I and I I enjoy a jaundiced portrait of marriage, I think, in in term relationships.
0: I do as well, but I think I think that this has been handled better in in other
2: films.
0: Mm. My favourite of the before trilogy, the only one that I think is a really good film, or or the better of the three at least, is Before Midnight. Mm. Where it's you know it's progressed further in time and they're at that point where they're past the puppy love and rekindling of an old romance and it's it's an established couple.
2: I do I do kind of want to watch those films just so I can watch that one honestly. But it has like a really great argument set piece in it. Yeah, I've always heard that. Um, anyway, uh, so are you? Do, let's see, certified copy. Uh, uh, anything else?
0: Certified fresh. I don't think
2: so. <laughs> what what star rating are you gonna give this film? I
0: might give it like two or something, two and a um, half.
2: I give it a, I give it a three and a half. Gentlemen's three and a half, because there there's enough in here I think makes it recommendable. I, I really like the photography. I know that you disagree to some degree, and I think I do think there are some flat sequences, but hmm. uh, and then it's kind of like a you know a film school fallback where you're like, yeah, I like how this looks. But I do think I have some very striking images that, you know, you just don't get in other films. And I like all the driving sequences. Um, and I do think there are, is to be lived in in both Binoche and, to a lesser extent, the, the British guy. Me. In your, in your performance. Um, which I, think, I actually think works better when he's just being a prick, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he's really good at being a prick. Uh, I wonder, it would be so strange if De Niro had made this movie. I would have been strange. They do have they do have very similar hair, so you yeah, wouldn't be strange. But um, okay, so let's move on. <clears throat> like someone in love. Like someone in love. Okay, uh, like someone in love. What's that about, yo? Uh, it's about a
0: Japanese prostitute. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> It's about a Japanese prostitute who uh, is having some problems with her boyfriend. Um, She's assigned a client.
2: Kind of of an abusive jerk.
0: Yep. She's assigned a client who is this uh, old uh, writer and translator with a toilet brush mustache.
2: (laughs) Big old walrus on his face.
0: The suggestion is is that he's not that interested in an actual physical relationship with this prostitute. And he was more interested in uh, making her food. And just enjoying her company, maybe.
2: He just seem like a lonely guy, so...
0: He then comes into contact uh, through dropping her off uh, with her boyfriend, who's this shitty boyfriend, guy.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: To cover up what his girlfriend is doing. He pretends to be her grandfather. Yeah. They get out of that situation and then um, some other stuff happens.
2: The movie goes on. But that's, there's not much uh, action in this film. Yeah, not, not plot heavy. As with as many Kerasani, Sami films, not, not a film necessarily about the plot. No. Did you love, like, someone in love? Well, after viewing Certified
0: Copy, because I watched these pretty close together, um, I found this refreshing. Mm. It felt like a return to form yeah. to some degree. It
2: does feel more of like a real film than Certified Copy does. Yeah. It was more visually
0: interesting. I mean, you already talked about the fact that 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 car windscreen sequence is uh, improved upon yeah. here, and I was pretty absorbed by the story. Yeah, so was I. Even though it's 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 very understated, not a lot happens. I was carried along by it pretty easily, mm. and um, it felt very much in sync with Japanese filmmaking. Mm. Yeah, which is interesting. It is. It was. It's not like a stylistic departure for Kiristami, no. but it just seems to fit the Japanese sensibility. Yeah, it doesn't
2: feel like He's, he's in, 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 embedding his own style onto a as matters. I mean, obviously he is to some degree, but it does feel contiguous. with the a legacy of Japanese film too. Yeah,
0: and obviously there is an influence of Japanese cinema on Kurosawa. He has
2: admitted uh, in interviews in his own film, making his um, uh, admiration for uh, Yasujirō Ozu. So. Yes, indeed.
0: Um, But I will say that as this film wound towards its climax of sorts, the the confrontation with the boyfriend, I grew a little bit anxious because I realised there's not much time left in the film for any sort of resolution. Uh And I just didn't want another... Kiristami trick ending mm. where it just stops and it's just an ambiguous ending again.
2: You got what you didn't want. It. <laughs> sure enough, sure
0: enough, that's what we get. And that, yeah. that actually really frustrated me because mm. he's done it so much at this point that instead of like daring experimentation or yeah, like it challenges, kind of narrative stark. expectations, it just feels like he doesn't know how to end the film. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it ugh, come on, man. That what this this doesn't this doesn't resonate in any way with the story that he's told. Like yeah. ending it in that particular point, point. and I don't need like a proper resolution to the narrative per se. But it just it just needed like a a, a note of resolution. Yeah, I agree. In these characters' lives, and it's just like not like not what like happened? not <laughs> like this. Yeah. So what? Essentially, if we can spoil the ending for yeah. our loyal listeners. The boyfriend has come to the, the old dude's house mm-hmm. to try and track down his girlfriend and he's really angry and then he throws a rock through the window and the old guy falls over. That's
2: it. That's then cut to credits.
0: Cut to credits. And I I really do think it's a shame because it, it sort of deprives the story or the, the preceding film of, of the resonance that it kinda of deserved. Yeah. Um and everything else was pretty spot on, I would mm. say. Like it it felt like I would like go so as far really as to say in this in
2: this if, if. This film had nailed the ending a bit more. This probably would have been my favorite Karasami film.
0: Yeah, everything else is so masterfully done.
2: I thought this film was like brilliant, and, and I, I do think that ending really sort of deflates it a bit. But I still think this one was really solid. And uh, it's it, and like its production history and like the fact that it's like shot with all Japanese cast. Like, that the only credited writer too, which is crazy. I mean, someone must have translated it, you know. Oh, they'd have to have, yeah. Um, but I just thought, I, I it, just, it, it seems so unlikely that this film would be great, and it just feels so right and good, you know?
0: It has so much to recommend it, I think. Um, but yeah, just to harp on the ending a little bit, there's a way that the endings of Taste of Cherry and Life and Nothing More, even though they're similarly ambiguous and experimental in their way, they resonate with you. like yeah. It makes you think about the film in a particular way, and it... It carries, it carries with you, whereas this just puts a weird, annoying full stop yeah. to something that felt incomplete.
2: Yeah, I agree.
0: But yeah, the performances were lovely, really well observed.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: And it basically doesn't put a foot wrong until the end, I would say. No,
2: I, I would definitely agree. And I think that a lot of the things we talked about is like sort of flaws, well, not a lot of things, but I think that the, the photography, the flatness of the photography, which is true in this film too to an extent, fits the theme and the setting more, you know? Yeah, it does. Because he's, he's mostly, I mean, this movie almost entirely takes place in this sort of, like, you know, I mean, as Tokyo is, like this hyper-industrial, urbanized place that that is is flat and dehumanizing in a way, right? Mm. As, as most cities are, I guess, to a degree. Um, and I think it, it really suits what he's going for, you know? And I think this film, uh, I really like how it portrays sex work as well. Like, you wouldn't have to, you could make this film about pretty much any other form of occupation, and it would still ring true, you know? Like he doesn't demonize his female character for pursuing it. It's not about, like, her, like, fall from, like, purity or anything like that. No. Uh, and it almost, it, 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 like, really, you know, sort of puts the, the you know, men-heavy problems with the fact that she sells her body on them as opposed to on what she's doing, right? I thought that was, like, a really progressive way to display it, you know? And, like, unlike the sort of uh, hand-fisted, like, social commentary in uh, Tin and some of his other films, it really, like, sort of naturally is woven into the story as opposed to something that's, like, been sort of added onto it. It almost does the prostitute sequence in Ten better than that sequence does, you know?
0: Yes, yes, that's true. Um, and we were spared of any, like, um, speechifying on the subject.
2: yeah. Because sure.
0: this film gets its point across without
2: having to do that, yeah. which is why it works so well. <clears throat> um, and I, I thought the opening sequence where, um, you know, her, her job prevents her from meeting with her. I mean, it, you know, it, it does seem sort of like an Ozu reference, you know, mm. <laughs> where, you know, the her obligations, her, um, uh, her very modern job uh, prevents her from being able to, you know, care for their grandparents, you know. Yeah, or grandmother specifically, and I thought thought the sequence where she's just moving around the city and, like, they drive past the train station she'd be incredibly moving, too.
0: Yeah, she's just listening to, like, a succession of voicemails that her grandmother has has left. Yeah, it's really Um, interesting. And that's what we hear. She's driving through, yeah.
2: I do think it's interesting that uh, pretty much every actor in the film was a professional actor, um, at least from what I can tell. Maybe not some of the more incidental characters, but, like, all the main roles were filled by people who had performed in other things beforehand. Mm. Um So that's kind of a break for Kerasami to a degree.
0: Well, I mean, he said in in con- in the context of certified copy, he found it a much easier experience to make that film than he did the films he made previously because the crew was professional, the cast was relatively professional.
2: And may- maybe it's 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 more difficult to do that sort of you know non professional acting thing when you don't speak the language that you're making the film in. You know. Certainly. Yeah. It's it's much harder to scout for exactly what you want. Um, than, than if you you know rely on professional actors, which is not to like the film at all, because I think all the all the lead performances are really moving and great.
0: They are they're very good. Everything everything had had a ring of truth to it. In in yeah. stark contrast to a certified coffee, I think. Yeah,
2: yeah, and, it, it, and they all sort of exude this like natural lived inness too. I think. I mean, it is you know it's a film about sort of the dehumanizing effects of of modern life, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact, I, I do like that they, they you can still make, it, 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 his film's not, like, without, I don't know, like, it has this, like, very violent undercurrent to it, but it's still not a film that's, like, completely hopeless or nihilistic in any way. Because they still, they still were able to sort of spontaneously form this, like, connection that goes beyond, like, you know, this professional or, like, this, this, and it, it almost, like, does the themes of sort of, like, how be better and, and more subtly, right? Because in a in a way, like he, he she is standing in for this the absent uh, absence of his granddaughter and, and his daughter. And you know, she and he standing in that for her inability to, you know, talk to her grandparents too. Yeah. But I thought this one was just moving and great. And then yeah, the and he does like sort of botch it just a bit. Um, hmm. but I still think this is a really great film and, and one of his one of his strongest ones. It's kind of amazing that he was able to make this. I mean I guess you know, 24 Frames is technically his last film, but, you know, it, it, it's really striking. It, it's, a, it's a shame that he died when he did, because this really suggested a new direction for him to take, I think. Um, that, unfortunately, he can't, because he's dead.
0: Let's rank s- seven random Abbas Army films that we watched for this podcast. Not quite random. Seven notable Abbas Army films.
2: Yeah. That and we selected sort of to focus on. We watched, watched in basic chronological order, pretty much yes hunter what is your number seven Uh, my number seven is i what i'm going to see is also your number seven certified copy yep that's mine too okay what is your
0: number six you my number six is ten
2: my number six is through the olive trees my number five is through the olive trees Mm. my number five is (laughs) ten there we go our list is pretty pretty similar yeah Yeah,
0: I think it might change a little bit in terms of number two and three and four, but number one, I'm assuming, will be the same. Yeah, probably. Number four, Mm -hmm. I have Like Someone in Love, Mm. the film we just watched. Uh, Number four for me is Taste of Cherry. My number three is Taste of Cherry. My number three is Where is the Friend's Home? My number two is Where is the Friend's Home? Uh, My number two is
2: Like Someone in Love. And my number one and your number one is... Life and Nothing. Life more. and Nothing More, which we could both agree is his greatest film.
0: So pretty similar. Our bookends are exactly the same.
2: Yes. Do you think... Here's a here's a question for you. Do you think you'll try to watch uh, his other films that we did not talk about on this on this show based on doing this marathon? Are you intrigued enough by his, his stuff to try to look at some of his other films?
0: Um, no. <laughs> okay.
2: Well... As in, like, we've watched...
0: We've watched, like... We've watched a lot of his signature films, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't feel a desire to seek him out over people I haven't explored as much of their films of. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not fanboying enough that I want to see everything he's ever done.
2: I think, I think, I, I would like to see some of his films that he made before the revolution. I think that'd be interesting, but uh, we're going to do Jafar um, Panahi next week, right? I'm just going to say yes to whatever he said. Uh, the white balloon and the mirror those are going to be the films that we're going to do next week.
1: Okay okay That's right mama burn. Hollywood burn. box officer. Box office. Box office, box office
0: okay, so this is the box office for both countries uh, Spanning August uh, 15th to 18th in Australia
2: 3, 2, 1 Okay, number one is
0: Once Upon a Time Good in boys Mmm
2: How much did Once, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood gross in... Land. four and a half mil uh-huh. uh, that is a mere one uh, fifth of what good boys grossed in America which is 21 mil
0: I gave QT seven Australian dollars of that 4.5 mil I
2: gave good boys none of my money <laughs> mm. I also really didn't give QT any money, AMC, I gave AMC money and then they gave QT money so Cause that's how I pay for movies these days it's a subscription service.
0: Now is it time for some movie news? Yeah, which which movie news should we do? So there's the news that everyone's talking about is the fact that uh, negotiations between the MCU and Sony, Disney and Sony, I should say, mm. have uh, jeopardized potentially the future of Spider Man in the MCU.
2: Well, I think I think they have. I think it's already been jeopardized and is done now. Whatever. I think it's been. I think it is a done deal. Is it really? Yeah, because I expected them to sort it out. No, yeah, I think I pretty soon. think uh, that it has been confirmed. But maybe it's just like a, you know a further negotiation tactic or something to have it come out. I
0: reckon there's just, I reckon it's gonna it's gonna be resolved and it's gonna be business
2: as usual. Well, we'll see. Maybe that could be our uh, our our signature hook is we'll both predict and see who's right and wrong. But I, I do like the idea of Sony just being like, nah, fuck, fuck Marvel. I do think it'd be really funny <laughs> if they just made... If they were like, you know what? We, we fucked up doing these amazing Spider-Man movies. Let's get Marvel to make two movies for us. <laughs> and then we will profit off them uh, and then um, have, our established Mar- or have our established Spider-Man and then just use all that infrastructure that Marvel has used uh, and just take it and go, run around with it.
0: So if we say that you're right and that the negotiations have ceased at this point and they and sony is going to proceed with their own spider-man films uh,
2: would they have to reboot it entirely or could no. they use tom holland and everything they can use that because because the, all of his contracts and stuff as i understand it, are with sony and not with uh marvel so interesting you already
0: joked about bringing raimi back there actually was talk of bringing Raimi back. Well, apparently,
2: um, one of the things they had on the table after the amazing Spider-Man was, a, was not a disaster, but didn't really make that much money, was that they wanted Raimi to come back and make a whole trilogy of films. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it's a which shame. Which would be amazing. Which, which uh, was revealed in the Sony email hacks. That they considered doing that. Which is a shame, because that would be great. And you know what? Uh, you know what? I think John Watts is pretty good as the Spider-Man house director, you know? But... You can replace him with Sam Raimi tomorrow, and I'd be really happy. So
0: me too. But also, I would be even happier if he just dispensed with the new cast <laughs> and just brought and it used all
2: back. <laughs> Tyree McGuire, <laughs> <laughs> but he's back in high school.
1: <laughs> but yes.
2: it's a continuation of Far From Home. But the original cast. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's um, that. Oh, also, Matrix Four is apparently going to come out.
0: Yes. Which is good But only with one Wachowski Only Lana Wachowski is working on it for some reason
2: But she she also was the only one who did The end of Sid's 8 So that's it That's the news Burn Hollywood Burn Aww.
0: Uh, so guess what? What? One of the local networks here Mm
2: -hmm.
0: hosted one Quentin Tarantino. What?
2: Your favourite filmmaker?
0: To schedule some films Mm. that inspired his own Once Upon a Time in
1: Hollywood. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, the way my brother sold it to me that he, he was actually working with this little-known Australian TV network, but it's not actually true. I think he did it in England, and mm, they, just they just picked imported it,
2: up. it That's so funny.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, your brother's.
0: And it's him liar. talking with uh, an American woman whose name escapes me. I'm not sure who she is. Uh, Phoebe Waller Apologies. Bridge. Apologies, because I, I don't recognise her. Um, but they have discussions, so they they introduce the films. Uh-huh. And the, the first film I watched, and this, this wasn't intentional. I, I wasn't going to go in and
2: watch his uh, series of films. But, but the films that were interested enough that you're like, I'm going to watch these.
0: That's how it started, at least. Um, I was just looking for a movie to watch because I was eating popcorn. Because you, you have to pair popcorn with a movie, and I had popcorn. so Yeah. Okay. Um, and I was, I was quite desperate, and I ended up watching the 1969 film Cactus Flower. Starring Walter Matthau and uh, Ingrid Bergman. And it's the first film role of uh, Goldie Hawn. Uh Ah. Directed by Gene Sachs and Mm -hmm. written by... This is the only reason... The main reason I watch it is I do like Walter Matthau. And I noticed that it was written by I.A.L. Diamond, who is most famous for collaborating with Gene Wilder on many of his seminal screenplays, such as The Mm -hmm. Apartment. So I was like, well, it can't be that bad. But it's not very good. Gene Wilder? Gene Wilder.
2: Did I say Gene (laughs) Wilder? Yeah, you did. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Billy Wilder. My boy, (laughs) Billy. Sorry. Sorry, Billy. Yeah, his famous screenplay is like, The Lady in Red.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. So I, I, A.L. Diamond uh, wrote this film. I think it's adapted from a play or something. Uh And it's this kind of shitty film about Walter Matthau as a, uh, a bachelor dentist sort of type. <laughs>
2: bachelor dentist type, yeah, the common character archetype.
0: I mean, he's normally a bachelor, but he's become inf- infatuated with uh, Goldie Horn. <laughs> he's normally
2: he's normally a bachelor, but he's become a dentist.
0: <laughs> but um, he doesn't he doesn't want to commit, so he pretends he's married with kids. He's he's Al Bundy. <laughs> and his uh, age appropriate assistant mm-hmm. at the dentist office is played by Ingrid Bergman mm-hmm. and he he uses her to uh pretend to be his wife
2: you pretending to be his wife that sounds like another movie i know called certified coffee that's right but then by the end he realizes oh no ingrid
0: bergman's okay yeah. as I'll as as extent. often
2: happens that sounds like a near uh, identical film to the uh Movie just go with it, the Adam Saylor film.
0: Yes, it, it just go with it is a remake of Cactus Film. <laughs> really?
2: Yes. <laughs> wow. Are Are you impressed that I knew enough of the? Uh, I am. I am. Of the uh, film, we just go with it. To Which I mean, that. I'm
0: assuming you haven't actually
2: watched. Nope, you're correct about that. But for some reason, the fact that Adam Sandler is a dentist. was attracted to a woman, Adam Isley, who's been printed on my brain as the film just got it. So, there you go. It's not a very good film. That seems to be a common thing with the films that Quentin Tarantino really loves.
0: Um, And the the transition to Walter Matthau uh, falling for Ingrid Bergman is extremely unconvincing. So... Walter Matthau, I like, so he's enjoyable to watch. I think Ingrid Bergman is good in this film as well. Goldie Hawn is pretty good as well. So all three are enjoyable enough, but it's a pretty bad film overall. Um, But worst of all, worst of all, is the fact that in order to watch these films, you have to Mm. put up with not only Quentin Tarantino's introductions, Mm -hmm. which are crappy, but mid-movie, he appears again. Oh,
2: my God. You're haunted Mid-fucking by
0: Mid-fucking-movie. And at the end of the movie. <laughs> Maybe it's, you would have, like... If you're What's presenting something? films, it's... You
2: You do the start and the end. You don't do the middle. <laughs> this is Hugh, oh, right sorry. now, you sound exactly like the guy for Certified Coffee. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> He's petulant in the way that you're petulant. You it's kind of like,
0: um... If the movie is good, you're like kind of making love to it, right? (laughs) You're watching it, you're going along with it, Yeah, whatever, whatever. And then suddenly, in the middle, in the middle of your precious lovemaking, Quentin Tarantino's fucking head pops up (laughs) to tell you about the (laughs) stupid things about the film you're already watching and trying to enjoy. You sound
2: genuinely incensed.
0: It was really annoying. I was like, what the... No, I don't want to see this again. And and they don't quite time it well enough, so they kind of spoil bits that haven't happened yet in the film. It's like,
2: fuck you. Yeah. Do, you, do you think you'd have liked what? The Fun time at Hollywood bore if you hadn't watched all these things? Maybe. Uh, anyway, so next.
0: Uh, I watched the Snowman. <laughs> t- a film that a you genius love. Genius film. <laughs> one of your favorite films. <laughs> would you? would you just notice one of your favorite films too? It has a
2: lot of enjoyable. Uh, it is very moments. Crappy, I will admit. It's absolutely terrible. It's, it's, it's absolutely terrible. It is junk, but it is.
0: Incredibly enjoyable chunk. It's especially enjoyable because it's not like outright trash. No. <laughs> or it doesn't have it. doesn't have the sheen of outright trash no. or like something straight. It to ha- video. It has the
2: sheen of like a like a euro thriller type of thing. You know, it feels like a prestige yeah, it does. Uh,
0: Scandinavian television show. It does.
2: That's true. Really,
0: what? Uh, or tele movie or something. <laughs> but it
2: has several inexplicable uh, qualities. Do you agree? Including the. I do. Uh, The uh, presence of one Val Kilmer.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, he was suffering from throat cancer during the filming. I was like, (laughs) what the hell is going on with his speech that they've clearly overdubbed after the fact? Yeah. And that's why. (laughs) Well. He literally just mimed nothing to save his voice.
2: Oh, my gosh.
0: Then they overdubbed the lines or something. I don't don't even know if he's the
2: voice. I mean, his voice sounds terrible, too, you know? It does. Like, when you hear the fact that he was suffering throat cancer, it's not a surprise. (laughs) No. Um, Anyway. But like, what I wonder is like, why? Why would you just not? Yeah. Why? Why cast him at all? What he's not adding star power. (laughs) Did you read about the production uh, of this film? Yeah, I know. I know that like he said that
0: they basically had no. Pre-production time, and they were just told to start filming at a certain point before anything was finished.
2: And. Yeah, and then and then they couldn't film like a third of the script or something like that.
0: Which makes sense because there's like so many holes in the story, and it yeah. doesn't feel like it progresses. It's like it like, shouldn't be a relatively so straightforward story. And
2: they film that have they seem to have no purpose whatsoever. Like the whole like political subplot, and you're like, what? Why is this in this movie? Is it John Malkovich trying making make up? J.K. I mean, Simmons. J.K. Simmons. Is, 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 that's right. A, He's like a scummy. I love that everyone has a terrible accent.
0: Well, it's weird, because some people just yeah. have a British accent. Like Michael Fassbender, right? I can't remember. And J.K. Simmons attempts some sort of accent. <laughs> I don't know what he was going for. But we said it's Scan- General Scandinavian. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: I, I love... My favorite part of the entire film, besides all of it, is the weird iPad that... Uh, Rebecca Ferguson's character hat. yes yes, what was the deal like with that you, you feel like it's product placement you know but there's no product as far as I know
0: no because it's the it's the worst design thing ever it, look, it looks like it's from a sci-fi film uh, a re- like of the vintage of Total Recall but like or, or the, Robocop the, the like best a, part of
2: it is that it leads to nothing
1: <laughs>
2: is she dead is she not so many questions uh, what else what else is great about this film All of it. The snowman? Yeah. (laughs) I love all the parts where Michael Fassbender gets blackout drunk and then wakes up in public spaces. (laughs) That's his character. Yeah, that's that's his one character trait. His name is Harry hole.
0: (laughs) He's estranged from his family. Yeah, yeah. And he drinks.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This is so original. And and but get this—he's still good at his job. So. <laughs> Wait, are you saying he's a brilliant but flawed police detective? That's right. That's no right. way, no way. He's messy, but an in unusual investigative uh, style oftentimes leads to the truth. I don't. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. It's a trailblazer. Um, it is worth watching. Yeah, I mean, it is so bad. <laughs> it's like a good negative example of, of a movie, you know. You have to yeah. watch stuff like it just to remind yourself that, you know, movies like really bad. Thanks again to our friend QT. <laughs>
0: Best bud QT. Uh, I was able to watch a film that you recommended,
1: mm.
2: Jacques Demy's
0: Model Shop. Brilliant film. It's a very good film. I, I really enjoyed it. It seems like
2: you agree with me about Gary Lockwood's performance in it, too.
0: I think he's really good. And yeah. I think he's really well cast. So first of all, uh, what we already talked about, which is, is physicality. And one of my, I think one of the pleasures of cinema, and unfortunately it's, it's almost entirely a masculine pleasure in terms of the, who gets to Mm. do it, is watching, is watching like a confident guy just do things physically, just go about like open doors and like make himself coffee and Mm. wander around with a certain confidence. And I, I, I would like to see the same thing, but with a female character. Um, but, I, but that is kind of pure cinema to me. Mm. That's, I, I really genuinely respond to that, mm. just seeing someone move about a space in that particular mm. way. And I think he's really good at it. And I think his performance is, is really good for this particular character as well this kind of <laughs> this really entitled guy yeah. who randomly meets this woman. Yeah. Basically stalks her and then says, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's not a complete, he's not a completely like hateable character e- either. There's like a vulnerability about him and especially the note it ends on, which is really quite moving. Yeah. It's, I thought.
2: It, it's super sad.
0: Are there credits in this film? Can you tell me that? Or does it end like immediately? Does it fade out to black and it ends? Do you remember?
2: I remember there being credits, but I don't know for sure. Maybe I saw, a, what really maybe annoyed I saw me a different cut. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: It does. It does end on that great moment, oh. zooming up on his face as he's getting emotional and his car is getting taken away, and he's speaking to someone on the phone. Oh. And then cut straight to fucking Quentin Tarantino's face.
2: <laughs> it should have been a dissolve. Almost before it even finished fading out. <laughs> no, it should have been an imposition.
0: I have one more film. Uh, this is also a QT recommended film: Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Mm-hmm which is uh, directed by that guy from Curb Your Enthusiasm, Enthusiasm, uh, Paul Mazursky. It's about a couple that go on like a new agey retreat and uh, they change their philosophy in life. They, they start being open and honest with each other about their various indiscretions and it's just the way it uh, affects this character and their uh, a couple of theirs that they're friends with. Mm-hmm. And... It's sort of a funny satire or semi-satire because it's based on a real experience Paul Mazeski had, I think, mm-hmm. um, of that kind of new-agey philosophy and the the effects it has. But it's also kind of a nice portrait of people uh, who are a little bit too old for the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the awkward navigation between these more conservative, older figures mm-hmm. and the changing of the times and stuff. So it kind of has a parallel with... Uh, Once more time in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just in its wardrobe. But
2: uh, it's not that great either. (laughs) It's kind of okay. Mm, Interesting. That's the film. Okay. I'm going to go through mine real quick. uh, And then we can do Dragon Forever also real quick. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Jesus, how could you forget our brilliant segments, you? Uh, So I watched a couple of films. Uh, Actually, I only watched two films. Uh... I watched that is a couple. Uh, Suck my dick. Uh, so I watched um, Christian Petzold's newish film, uh, Transit, uh, which you you've seen Phoenix, right? Sort of follow followed to that. Yes, uh, and I thought this one was really brilliant. Moving uh, is sort of about a it, it transposes this um, Kafkaesque narrative of surf, circumnavigating uh, visas and borders of transit and the like type of papers um there was a holocaust narrative originally it transposes it to modern day um uh France and is sort of is trying to I don't know like create this almost spiritual distillation of of what it feels to be like a refugee uh working through a place that actively wants to kill you (laughs) and it's great and moving what do you mean it
0: was a holocaust narrative originally yeah is it based on something? Yeah, it's
2: based on a book um, written by a, a woman who fled the Holocaust. Oh, okay. Um, and it's sort of that's where, how it got it started. But um, uh, also with the same name. Uh, and it's good. I would definitely recommend if you can check it down to check it down. It's it's very moving and poetic and frightening and strange very curious film I think in a lot of ways but um it really works uh, and has some really it has a great we performance um, by <laughs> Claude rich uh, Franz rogowski uh, as this German German refugee who's fleeing this sort of um, unspecified, you know, genocidal purging that is occurring across France. Um, uh, But it's it's a really, really good film. Uh, And then I watched... Olga George A. Yeah, I watched... uh, I'm not even going to listen to what you're saying. So I watched um, Alain René's... Jatem, Jatem. J'Tem. Jatem. which is sort of a film um, that... Where he was like, you know what, I'm going to make my... uh, I'm gonna make my typical editing style and sort of time jumping techniques that have been featured in my other films such as uh, Muriel or The Time of Return and uh Last Year at Mary Bad. And what I'm gonna do is I'm going to make a film. Make a film that narratively justifies them. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> the film about this suicidal man who is um, basically he signed up for this uh, experiment where he will travel through time, and then he sort of uh, fractures the chronology from there, and he sort of jumps in and out of his memories, and And if you've seen a Leigh Renee film from this period, you kind of know what to expect. I did find this one to be kind of cool to the touch, but it has a really terrific lead performance, um, which is uh, a little undermined by the fact that the female lead performance is kind of not a, not quite as strong. But it's a good film. Um, definitely worth a watch. It has some really interesting production design of the like central uh, or the the time traveling device, um, mm. and uh, it has some really great touches. I think interesting um, film. Uh, that's it.
1: Um, this was
0: written written by Stanley, right?
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, and yeah, also directed by Stanley.
1: Oh, yeah, so.
2: so I've been playing a lot of this video game called Final Fantasy XIV, which is part of the long-running Final Fantasy franchise. Are you aware of the Final whoa, Fantasy whoa, 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 whoa. franchise, Hugh? Final Fantasy XIV.
0: Just said like 20 words in two you seconds. you know what Final Fantasy is, Hugh? I do know what Final Fantasy is. You've been playing a video game called Final Fantasy something. XIV. XIV. Yes,
2: which is an online okay. multiplayer uh, role-playing game, or a RPG for short. Is it? It is. Typically I don't play uh RPG or uh, MMO RPGs, but I've been really getting into this one, uh, mostly because one of my friends That's not playing.
0: usual for the series, is it?
2: Uh, no, well For the most part they are single player RPGs, but there was a MMO previous to this one. Final Fantasy 11 was awesome okay. in MMO. Um but I really enjoy this game a lot, um, and it's a pretty compelling story, which is kind of a rarity for MMOs. Uh, it has really tight gameplay. Um, it's not too difficult. It's pretty uh, approachable for beginners. I really enjoy the world that it's based on. Um, and this game has kind of a fascinating story behind it in that uh, it originally launched in, I think, 2012, uh, under just the moniker of Final Fantasy fourteen. Okay. Mm-hmm. That launch was an absolute disaster. 2010 was when it came out originally. Um, and it basically got terrible reviews, and nobody who played it, and apparently it's just a really bad game, okay? But they, uh, turned it around, they re-released the game as Final Fantasy XIV, A World Reborn, or Realm Reborn, rather, and they sort of, uh,
0: What were the problems they needed to fix?
2: Uh, you know, I can't. I haven't played the original release, so I don't know for sure. But I know that the original release has been it's been scrubbed from existence. So um, did at least do you know if it at least had like a troubled production history that
0: caused it to be uh, released before it had been finished? That's or?
2: my understanding. Okay. But this, they, you know, they redid the whole game. Uh, they did an in-game event where basically the world ended, which has been incorporated mm-hmm. into the story of this game, which is interesting. Um, and it's just a really great MMORPG. I really, if you have a friend uh, who you can play with, uh, it's a lot of fun. It, t- it sort of takes the basic uh, MMO RPG gameplay, which is to say there's, like, t- three um, archetypes of... Uh, Classes that you choose from. I mean, there's a bunch of different classes, but there's three like um, roles that you fill: uh, healer, mm-hmm. DPS, or tank. Right? What's DPS? So DPS is just someone who does a lot of damage. Okay. Uh, tanks. What does it stand for? Uh, damage per second. Uh, oh. Tanks are uh, basically characters that occupy um, your the enemy's time. Okay. And they basically draw attention to themselves. Because they can take a lot of firepower. Yeah, but they're tanks, not take. Oh, I know that. Okay, I just wanted wanted to make sure you didn't mishear me. I know that you can be a little slow sometimes with that sort of stuff. Mm.
1: Um, But
0: a tank is famous for the amount of armor. Yeah.
2: It's the same, same principle.
0: As well as the formidable firepower that it can wield also.
2: Yeah. No, not so much the firepower.
0: Uh, so that is where they divert from the real-life tank counterparts. Yes. <laughs> All right, continue.
2: Uh, I'm just. I'll, you've
0: sold me so much that I'm signing up already as we speak. Okay.
2: <laughs> On your computer, I can definitely play it. Yeah. Um, it's it's a really fun game. It has. A, I don't even know what to say. So it's considered silence.
0: Well, we've only got uh, 40 seconds left. Um is uh guess how old my computer is? 3 uh, I guess
2: I can't change it. 7 topics. years old.
0: No, it's, it's I think it's 9 years old.
2: Wow, is it a desktop or yeah. a uh, laptop?
0: It's a desktop. Hmm.
2: It still runs pretty well.
0: Still runs pretty well?
2: Interesting. I guess you aren't doing too many like um intensive things with it, right? Well,
0: I am because I use both the uh, high-grade
2: music editing
1: software. Just
0: yeah.
2: oh. struggle a little bit,
0: and also Final Cut Pro. So you, maybe editing. you could
2: play Final Fantasy fourteen. You you should join up right now.